I V M. You are listening to the Signal Daily, brought to you by Front Page Studios. Are you a shopaholic like me who couldn't access Mintra for twelve hours? Cause same, but apparently it wasn't a glitch. Mintra was busy creating a new vertical FWD to cater to the Gen Z crowd. In the next two years, Mintra aims to draw ten million Gen Z shoppers, a group that already makes up nearly eight million of its customer base. But how is it going to lure the Gen Z? With FWD, Mintra wants to be a one-stop shop. For over 500 trendy brands, including H&M, Babe, and Boho, as well as Mintra's own private label brands like Sangria and Roadster. Additionally, FWD also intends to provide a one-of-a-kind shopping experience by creating short-form videos which are similar to Reels, with the help of a community of approximately 500 influencers. And no, it's not just Mintra that's making these big changes. Even luxury brands. Are seeing a shift in consumers' purchasing patterns. A report by NetBase Quid predicts that by 2025, 50% of luxury market will be dominated by Gen Zs and Millennials. Brands like Versace are now jumping on the bandwagon with over 600,000 followers on TikTok. It is using the platform to showcase runway shows and other content to attract this audience. And it's not just established brands. There's also a surge in fashion startups targeting this demographic. Take India-based company Stumble for example. It focuses specifically on creating clothing for Gen Zs and has even raised 1.6 million dollars from Sama Capital to support its venture. But why are fashion brands trying so hard to woo the Gen Z crowd? Well, for starters, the Gen Z shoppers collectively have a disposable income of around 360 million dollars. As reported by Gen Z Planet, such buying power has also brought a seismic shift in their spending habits. And secondly, Gen Z is literally reshaping the fashion industry. Gen Zs are not your typical outfit of the day trendsetters anymore. They are also woke and actively thinking about the environment and sustainability. In fact, Emma Chu, global director at Wonderman Thompson Intelligence, stated in a Business of Fashion report, and I quote. Gen Z is leading the change when it comes to sustainability and climate change. End quote. And she is right. The report also noted that upcycling and selling used clothes have become so popular among the youth that it's expected to be a billion-dollar industry by 2025. For example, even companies like H&M has come up with a biodegradable and sustainable solutions for the new line of baby clothing that are free from any chemicals that cause harm to the environment and human beings. So all of this means one thing: Gen Z isn't just disrupting fashion trends, but they're shaking up the entire industry. For the next few minutes, you're going to know a little more than you did yesterday from the world of technology, business, policy, and anything that leaves you with food for thought. Hello, I am Manaswini, and this is the Deep Dive for Third May, twenty twenty-three. The US banking crisis appears to have blown over for the time being, although not before swallowing three banks. The solutions so far seem like band-aids, 
and doubts still linger whether root causes have been really addressed. Two banks, the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, collapsed earlier this year and another, First Republic, faced a run on deposits by panicky customers. The bank was temporarily supported by banks led by JP Morgan and regulatory assurances. Yet, it kept sliding towards inevitable collapse as withdrawals continued unabated. Over the weekend, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, which guarantees safeties of bank deposits up to a limit, hurried through a rescue plan that ended in the sale of the bank to the US's biggest bank, JP Morgan Chase. Interestingly, until the bidding began, JP Morgan was acting as a rescue advisor. Ultimately, the FDIC handed over the ailing bank to JP Morgan because it found its offer to be a neat solution without complicated carve-outs. It also reduced FDIC's liability, which is a bonus because the money comes out of taxpayers' dollars. With the acquisition done and dusted, First Republic's 84 branches reopened as branches of JP Morgan on 1st May. The banking giant took over $173 billion of loans, $30 billion of securities, and $92 billion in deposits of the failed bank. This last-minute rescue plan may have put the lid on the crisis for the moment, but with the fall of First Republic Bank, 2023 has become a record year for banking failures in the US. And no, not in the terms of the number of banks that have gone down, which is three, by the way, but in terms of assets. According to the New York Times, the three banks together held $532 billion in assets, which is more than the $526 billion when adjusted for inflation held by the 25 banks that collapsed in 2008 at the peak of the global banking crisis. First Republic is also the largest bank to collapse in the U.S. banking history, second only to Washington Mutual, which collapsed in 2008. Incidentally, that was also taken over by the FDIC and sold to J.P. Morgan. Like I said earlier, First Republic's downfall was anticipated. It had been in a stew for the past few weeks with investors losing their faith in the California-based lender. The bank was a favorite with wealthy clients because it offered high interest rates on deposits and excellent personal banking services. It became famous for giving mortgages at ultra-low interest rates to rich home buyers who rarely defaulted on loans. What especially attracted rich clients to this bank was that unlike conventional mortgages, they didn't have to start repaying the principal amount for a decade, which meant that they had more cash in hand to invest. It was all a very clever business plan. That is, until recently, when the Federal Reserve started hiking interest rates to tackle inflation in the US. This led depositors to seek better returns elsewhere. Then there was another problem. First Republic's wealthy clientele meant that most of the deposits were all above the FDIC's insured limit of $250,000. Once Silicon Valley failed, First Republic's depositors were also worried about their money and they started pulling out their deposit. Still, this beleaguered bank was trying to stand on its wobbly legs. A few weeks ago, 11 large banks led by, well, JP Morgan, deposited $30 billion to keep it afloat. That gave markets some confidence, but the bottom fell out when its latest earnings report showed that the bank had lost more than $100 billion in customer deposits. 
The bank's share prices tanked and it eventually lost 97% of its value since the run first began. An end, which in a bank's case is receivership, seemed inevitable. But according to Bloomberg, behind the scenes, the FDIC was furiously working the phones. Potential bidders wanted to wait it out hoping for the bank to end in FDIC's custody and perhaps piecemeal sale. But the Biden administration wanted a private deal to avoid talk of taxpayers' money being used to bail out fat cat bankers. Flashbacks to 2008 and 2009 is not very good in an election year, you see. FDIC more or less achieved it with the J.P. Morgan deal. As for J.P. Morgan, it couldn't have done better. As for the terms and conditions, J.P. Morgan will make a $10.6 billion payment to the FDIC. It will have to return $25 billion out of the $30 billion that other banks infused into First Republic. On the other hand though, the FDIC's deposit insurance fund is taking a hit of $13 billion. But shareholders will probably get nothing out of this. Now, J.P. Morgan emerges bigger than antitrust threshold would have otherwise allowed, thanks to a waiver for the rescue. In fact, early analysis from Bloomberg Intelligence suggests that it may add 1-2% to 2% to 2023 and 24 net income with its purchase of First Republic, barring the $2.6 billion gain on closing and, of course, $2 billion of restructuring costs. If you like listening to The Signal Daily, please show us some support. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'd love to hear what you have to say about this podcast. So feel free to shoot an email at hello at the rate thesignal.co. The Signal Daily is produced in association with IBM. The episode was written, researched and produced by Akshaya and Shorbury. Edited by Dinesh Narayanan and me, Manaswini. Mastered and mixed by Manas and Nirvan. You can catch this podcast every morning on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Prime Music, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We are thesignal.co on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter.